Layman's is proud to sponsor Self-Sufficient Life. From time-tested garden tools to nostalgic homestead decor, Layman's can help you enjoy the self-sufficient life. Find Layman's online at L-E-H-M-A-N-S dot com. Everyone wants to be a millionaire, but where do you turn when you strike it rich, then lose it all in a real estate meltdown? Hey, it's Tim Young of the TheSelfSufficientLife.com. Today, I'll share the story of a hot dog who rescued a couple of corporate dropouts who lost everything in the Great Recession. Now, this is an incredible story, a lifetime story of ups and downs where a high school dropout claws her way to the top of the corporate ladder and strikes it rich. My husband walked away with a couple million and I walked away with probably 800,000. Then in the bat of an eye, we lost everything. Every dime that we had made working that all our retirement, everything, our, our big four bedroom house with the swimming pool, the boat, everything. We lost everything. That's Laurie Charpentier, who, along with her husband, Mark, hit rock bottom. They went from feeling secure and on top of the world to feeling... Panicked. Constant stress. Constant panic. Okay, so anytime I'm watching a movie with my four-year-old daughter and she senses danger, I have to pause it and tell her that everything's going to be all right. Like when the dad gets swept away in The Good Dinosaur or the mom and her eggs are devoured in Finding Nemo. I have to let her know that there's a happy ending. So let me reassure you, in the end, this couple, Laurie and Mark, were rescued, so to speak, by the most unlikely hero, a dog named Max. This dog changed my life. I'm so excited to bring you this story because I'm a dog lover, always have been, and I have my own little dog who torments and ridicules me, just as Max has a voice of his own that guides Laurie. But to get the whole story, we're going to have to rewind and follow Laurie's path from childhood to the farm. I grew up in Rhode Island, basically in the suburbs. My early introduction to um, gardening or anything like that, because that's my thing, um, was from my grandfather. So he he just had a little postage size suburban backyard, but he he always adored growing his tomatoes and you know all of a sudden and it just rubbed off on me. And that's not the only thing that would rub off on her. Everyone in my family's bookkeepers, first of all. So my aunt, my mother, my sisters, but we're all bookkeepers. So Laurie's childhood influence was from her grandfather's passion for gardening on a small suburban lot, and she was equally influenced by the women around her, all of whom had a career in bookkeeping. This was the lower middle class environment Laurie was raised and schooled in. But she found another passion in high school. I got married right out of high school to my high school sweetheart. And uh, a couple of years later, we started having children. And I didn't even graduate high school at the time. I had some medical issues my senior year and just never went back. I just couldn't stand the thought of going back to school another year after all my, gra- my friends had graduated. Ah, young love. But it's not always what it's cracked up to be. Fresh out of high school with no degree and a couple of kids in tow, Laurie experienced her first adult crisis when her husband just kind of like disappeared, flaked out, disappeared, whatever. But Laurie's not a quitter and she's resilient. So even though she got married and had children early in life, she didn't let go of her dreams. 
she began clawing her way out of the hole that she had dug for herself. A couple years after I had my children, I got my GED, took that test and got my technically got my high school diploma, if you want to call it that. And then I went to night school. I went to college and um, got my psychology degree, did some accounting. I always did bookkeeping and accounting on the side. So I just kind of got the degree, the, the, the educational background to back up what I was already doing. Wow. Laurie became a bookkeeper. What a shock, right? So even though she may have been helping family members with bookkeeping behind the scenes, she didn't have a real job. But now, with a college degree in hand, she could get one if she could find a way to get her foot in the door. My aunt had the second job working for this small company, and she couldn't keep the second job. She, uh, <laughs> she said to her boss, I can't work for you anymore, but here's your replacement. I bet the boss loved having that surprise sprung on him like that. He was not too happy, first of all, because that's how he found out she was leaving. Finally, I, I got an actual interview with him after bugging him. And he said, all right, we're going to try you out. And Laurie worked in that job for a couple of years. She proved herself and did really well as the company grew. At the time that I started, there were only 18 people in the company. That was in 98. And by the year 2000, we were moving to a new facility and we had just crested 50 people. 50 people kind of starts to bring you over a threshold, if you will, for some of the laws of Family Medical Leave Act and some of the things where a smaller company doesn't aren't held to those regulations. Once you hit 50 people, you're now, all of a sudden, you have to be in compliance with all these different regulations. It's really exciting to be part of that kind of growth. Believe me, I know I've been there. Laurie was loving her job, and the company was paying for her to go to school and continue her financial education. But the company growth created other needs, and that presented a fork in the road for Laurie. Or an opportunity, if you will. My boss approached me and he said, look, we're getting to the point now, we're at 50 people, we don't have an HR presence. Do you want to continue on and become the controller of the company, because now we need that going on, or do you want to go and be our HR director? Interesting dilemma. Laurie grew up in a family of bookkeepers and was doing really well at the job, but remember, Laurie got a degree in psychology. Maybe it was time for a change. I had done numbers all my life, and I had studied psychology, and I was really a people person, kind of, even though I'm an introverted person in outside of work. In business, I was very comfortable. As long as I'm comfortable with what I'm doing, in business, I was very comfortable. I was more extroverted and more people-oriented, and I, and I really wanted to get into more of like the employee relations and all of that. So I said, yeah, I, I, I want to try this HR thing. That was an interesting choice for Laurie, almost sacrilegious in a family of bookkeepers. Plus, many bookkeepers are introverts, as Laurie describes herself. So why would she opt for a career change? Part of me was always satisfied with the numbers portion. It's neat. It's, it's, it's you know, eight, one plus one equals two. There's no controversy. Just leave me alone and let me deal with my numbers. But then the other side of me, there's always been something, in it, and to this day it still kind of, you know, eludes me a little bit, but there's always been this nagging kind of, um, you should be doing something more. You, should be, you need to be helping people in some way. That need to help others would not only send Laurie down a different career path, it would have a great impact on the highs and lows she would later experience in life. It was almost like she had this calling that she didn't even know about at the time, a calling to be helpful to others. But to get to that point, she had a lot to learn about HR. I crammed. 
I went to every seminar. I took every course that, you know, they paid for it, carte blanche, you know, whatever you need. And I just spent every waking moment preparing the regulation portions. That's easily covered. It's, it's pretty much black and white, too. I mean, there's no special interpretation for a lot of this. It, it's, it is what it is. Yeah, well, in that sense, it's like accounting, I guess. It is what it is. But there's that other side of HR, the employee relations side that draws on emotional skills, empathy, compassion, support, encouragement, goal setting, you know, being an extrovert. I was already relating to people kind of by default because I was doing, even in the financial role, I was doing payroll. So people would come to me and say, oh, I have this issue. I have that issue. And because we didn't have an HR person, I I kind of was taking care of a little bit of that anyway. So I found that I really liked that. So meet Laurie, the HR manager. She added human resources next to accounting on her resume and did very well in both jobs. Even though she left high school with no degree, by 2004, she had earned her GED, a college degree, and had climbed her way up the corporate ladder. She loved her job and was really valued by her boss. Then in 2004, we got bought out by a larger company. By that time, Laurie was in a serious relationship with a man she's married to today, Mark. And Mark worked at the same company. He was the manufacturing manager. And he worked there for 26 years. They both had great jobs at the same company, pulling down some serious bucks. 130000 a year. And as often the case with corporate takeovers, it didn't take long for things to change. We got bought and, and the culture changed. The, the people that bought us were not egalitarian. They were very corporate, very strict, very rigid. Um, they imposed a dress code. They cut the benefits. This culture shift was a huge shock from what she had experienced before the takeover, when Laurie's CEO had a very different way of running things. The company I worked for at the time was very egalitarian. And so, like, the, the president of the company, he knew everyone's name, what their family situation was, if there were issues, whatever. I worked for him, and I also worked for his partner, which was the CFO. And the CFO was always coming into my office, and he would say, you know what, we're not doing enough for the employees. What, what can we do? Can we match the 401k better? Can you run some numbers on that? And So, you know, he'd always, they were always looking out for the, comp, for, the, for the employees. So in that sense, they were very patriarchal. You know, they were like dad. Yeah, well, dad bolted. He took the money and ran, leaving Laurie and Mark and all the others with a new dad, so to speak. So Laurie's mindset began to change. See, she was raised in a corporate world of trust, of doing what's right for the employees. But in this new world... I absolutely lost trust. She lost trust because she was now working directly for the president, the new dad. The dad with a firm grip. And he had a very different approach to employee relations than her prior boss. They wanted me out. They made it, they made it clear right up front that they didn't pay their other... They had um, regional HR managers. They had an HR person or, or a rep at each location that they had across the United States and abroad. And then they had regional directors. And I made more money than even the regional directors, and they didn't like that. So what happened? The first thing they did when they met me was they froze my pay, and they denied my bonus. Keep in mind, this was a bonus that Laurie had already earned. So yeah, of course, she lost trust. And it's pretty hard to be the employee face of a company that you can't trust. From that point on, things just went downhill. And and they were asking more from me than I was willing to give. I couldn't be the face of that company knowing that they're pulling the wool over some of the, most of the people's eyes, telling me one thing and saying, okay, you're going to tell them this, but this is really what's happening. 
You know, not long before, Laurie was loving her career, working with and for great people, getting paid well for doing work she enjoyed. But anyone with a job in corporate America isn't really in control of their livelihood, even if they think they are, or just don't think about it at all. The rug can be pulled out from under you at any moment. My boss called me and he said, you don't seem happy here. And I almost said to him, no shit. But I said, yeah, you know, I'm not because this, this and this. And he said, well, what do you think about giving your resignation? Of course, Laurie didn't really like that idea, but the writing had been on the wall for some time. So she knew this course was inevitable. I mean, it wasn't like the good dad was coming back or anything, right? But she didn't want to make it easy on them. So she negotiated a way out. You may even hear Max in the background barking his approval at negotiation of the terms. They offered me three months severance. Um, and at the time, I had also, in preparation for a new career, I had also signed up for this $7,000 uh, coaching program through IPEC. IPEC is an accredited coaching program, and Laurie was interested in becoming a life coach so she could help others. I went through a coaching program that took a year. And as part of the deal, the three-month severance, I said, fine, you know, we'll do this mutual thing and I'll go quiet and whatever, but I want you to reimburse me the seven grand for the program. And they agreed. Sounds like a good deal to me, though I'm not quite sure that Max agrees. Three-month severance and she gets reimbursed for the coaching program? Not bad. But that's not that much money to hold you over if you're starting a brand new career as an entrepreneur. Fortunately, Laurie had a little bit of a cushion. You see, her prior boss had really taken care of her and Mark before he sold the company. When we got taken over, we had stock options. Our, our, our original bosses had set us up. My husband walked away with a couple million, and I walked away with probably 800000 Sweet. That gave Laurie and Mark a lot of breathing room, now that they were both out of a J-O-B. So they figured we could take our time and just invest in something else and change, just totally change our lifestyle, not be a slave to all the stuff that you accumulate because you always tend to live up to your means instead of living below your means. So, you know, we, we tried to shed a lot of that stuff and just live as simply as we could. So I took three years off for training. I trained as a hypnotherapist. I trained um, I did some training as a Reiki master. I did training in shamanism, all sorts of um, different types of healing modalities that I felt I could add to a coaching practice. With the time off, Laurie became a life coach, and she really got a high from helping others. And it was such a great feeling, you know. It was like, oh my goodness, I did that, you know. Like I, I helped them, and and that was like I knew that's what I wanted to do. Laurie wasn't only a life coach; she was an entrepreneur with a life coaching business. But here's the thing: no business can succeed without sales. And it's hard to sell if you're an introvert. I never really succeeded as a coach. I just could not figure out how do I get the next client. And it just seemed like that was like a whole new source of stress for me before it was the stress of dealing with, you know, being incongruent with my management right before leaving. And now it was a new stress. Laurie was an effective coach, but let's face it, sales just wasn't her thing. So she had spent three years taking some time off, finding herself and learning this new skill set, only to find she didn't have the entrepreneurial side to make it work. Laurie and Mark were both out of the corporate workplace and trying to simplify their lives. But that transition wasn't overnight. We hadn't completely shed ourselves of all of the trappings of 
being well-to-do or, or, you know, comfortable or whatever you want to call it. And we still both had interests, though. At the same time, we both, while this was all going on, we, we had a garden in the backyard. And at that time, we're on 10 acres. Um, that was my husband's house. When we left there, we got married. We settled into that house. And, you know, we were living high off the hog for a little while. And knowing that we had to make some kind of a change. And so we said, well, we'll, we'll, go, we'll get some passive income. Everyone loves passive income, right? I mean, the theory is that money comes in every day without you having to do anything. But Laurie and Mark didn't want to be that passive. They still had interest and they wanted to work. They just didn't want to work for someone else. He likes to work with his hands, so he started a landscaping business and a property management firm that just he and I ran and we bought properties. He would cut the lawns, plus he got other lawn customers or whatever in landscaping. And that was his way of connecting with like the gardening phase and all that. All the time we're thinking like we wanted to open up some kind of a nursery or maybe have a farm or we couldn't really decide. So we said, well, we'll invest in this real estate for now because... You know, the economy is kind of crappy, so we'll we'll buy low, sell high. Yeah, where have I heard that before? I mean, if anything sounds more enticing than the passive income strategy, I suppose it's the notion of buying low and selling high. I mean, sure, I mean, it works if you can pull it off. But does anyone ever really pull it off? We invested everything in real estate. 2008, 2009, when we bought, it hadn't quite tanked yet. And all of the properties that we happened to buy, because we had never been landlords before, we, we hooked up with a terrible real estate agent. We did not do our due diligence like we should have. The, the properties all needed work. The, every, all of our tenants were out of work because of the economy, which we didn't foresee that. Um, we lost everything. Every dime that we had made working that all our retirement Everything, our our big four-bedroom house with the swimming pool, the boat, everything. We lost everything. Oh, geez. How do you bounce back from something like that? I mean, after dropping out of high school, you get married, have kids really early. Then your husband flakes out and leaves. But you press on and put yourself through college. You climb the ladder, reach senior management, but then your company gets sold and you find yourself working for people who don't appreciate you. Fortunately, you made a boatload of money with stock options, so you take three years to pursue a new career as a life coach. But that doesn't work out, so you invest your money in the real estate market at the worst possible time. And you lose it all. So what can you do but get a job and opt back into the rat race? I actually took a couple of part-time jobs during that period. Um, when we knew that the the properties that we bought were kind of going south, I kind of got, got a little nervous. And I'm like, all right, well, I better have some kind of backup income, whatever, just in case this doesn't work out. So one of the things I did was um, I, had, I, I had just had like a couple of part-time stints that I did. One of them was working as um, an activities director for a nursing home. And that's where I applied um, a lot of the garden therapy and, and um, working with Alzheimer's patients. So I was still applying the, the knowledge and the training that I had picked up. I was applying it. And I thought that was going to be the best job ever. You know, it was going to pull on all my skills. And I ended up doing it full time. And then um, I had some health issues. And I had a period of time where I was having some neurological issues. And doctors didn't know what it was. And I ended up having to leave that job take care of my health. 
So that was another year Laurie had to stay out of work. But even though they were starting to get deep into trouble with the real estate holdings, Mark's landscaping business did generate some steady income. So they held on as long as they could. Then in 2012, I took a job as an, as an HR director again. Going back to corporate America wasn't really what Laurie wanted to do. But what are you going to do? It was a steady paycheck that rose very quickly. The president of the company, the owner, was very happy with me. He doubled my salary before I was even there a year. You see, that's all it takes to sell your soul again to the devil. They give you a raise, you're feeling great, and before you know it, you're back on the treadmill, running in the rat race. So we doubled my salary in six months. I'm feeling great. I'm thinking like, okay, this isn't corporate America, so it's you know, I can deal with this. I'm helping people. That's what we call rationalization. So it's okay, you know, and we had already reduced our lifestyle expenses. You know, we were down to like just, you know, we're not going out to eat every night. We, we changed all of our attitude about what it means to be successful and, and all the trappings that go with it. And we were, we were living modestly. While the job seemed to be going well, the real estate investments weren't. Laurie and Mark had not only sunk all their cash into the real estate market, they had taken on a lot of debt at the same time. Remember, back then, lenders were only too eager to finance properties. We purchased properties in an area of Westerly, Rhode Island, that, you know, there's, there's a wealthy area of Westerly, which we always knew about. But then there's like the armpit of Westerly, which we did not even realize Westerly had. So... We invested in what was supposed to be like this neighborhood rent um, rejuvenation project where, you know, it was kind of on the borderline of not a bad neighborhood, but, you know, the up and coming neighborhood being worked on and paid attention to. And we we found these, you know, old houses that were turned into um, tenements basically back in the day. And we invested in them. And. Like I said, they weren't in bad neighborhoods, um, but they weren't in the greatest neighborhood either. And we, what we wanted to do, because we were still left over from our original jobs where the owners were very altruistic, we felt like that's the way you needed to treat your tenant, with respect and do, bend over backwards and do everything you can and they'll be loyal. It doesn't work like that in the real estate world. Whenever you know a tenant smells weakness... <laughs> It take advantage all day long, and we learned that the hard way. So we invested in a bunch of different buildings, which, you know, these are hundred, two hundred, $300,000. One of the buildings we bought was $500,000. It was a nine-unit. Nine it was built two buildings, or three buildings, actually, a nine-unit, um, a four-unit, and a two-unit, all on the same property. Um, but we had, you know, the bank was like, yeah, we'll give you these loans because you have a ton of cash. But we want fifty. We want fifty percent down. So we're loading up cash for down payments, all these down payments. And then we get into it, and we realized how much work we really needed. To, and my husband is because we had that altruistic attitude at the time. Um, he was like, "Oh, you know what? We can't rent the place looking like this. We we have to really fix it up." Well, here's the answer for fixing stuff up because he also has a background in carpentry from the service and all that. Was to gut the place. Let's gut it and start over. You know how much money that costs. So here's the answer for it. So we got all the properties at one point or another and redid them. So we had lines of credit out there for for re rehabbing the properties and it was just so many projects going on at once. And then, you know, the recession really, really hit and 
the tenants stopped paying. Man, this is such a hard story to listen to. I need a break. I'll be right back with you after this message. Hey, it's Tim Young. When my wife and I moved to the country, Layman's.com was one of our first stops. That's where we found the oil lamps, canning supplies, hand crank grain mills, wood cooking stoves, even the emergency supplies that we depend on. Founded in the 1950s, Layman's started as a hardware store serving the Amish in Kidron, Ohio. Today, Layman specializes in practical, non-electric goods that will help you live the simpler life you're craving. So even if you work in the city, you can still be a modern homesteader. And Layman's has the nostalgic and practical home decor and kitchen appliances you're looking for. So whether you're looking for time-tested farm and garden tools or off-grid stove and appliances, Layman's has the high-quality products that every farmer, modern homesteader, and prepared person needs. Layman's for a simpler life. Find them at layman's.com. That's L-E-H-M-A-N-S dot com. We're back with a story of Laurie and Mark Charpentier and even Max the dog, the inspiration for Max's farm. And we'll get to the birth of the farm soon enough, but first got to find out how it all came to be. Before the break, we heard how the altruism Laurie and Mark learned in their corporate lives may not be such good advice when applied to tenants. They bought a bunch of properties, gutted and renovated them. Then the tenants walked all over them, demanding more and not paying rent at the same time. If that wasn't enough, Laurie and Mark had to increasingly rely on credit cards to make it all work. But the rules were about to change. We had a bunch of credit cards that we were using. We would shuffle the credit cards, play that game. So we would have the the credit cards and we would say, okay, well, we need to purchase sheetrock for this project that we're doing. And all right, well, I'm going to put it on this credit card. And then um, we always had high ceilings on the credit cards. What happened was during the reception, you know, we had multiple credit cards that we were using really for cash flow. And they lowered, the banks lowered the ceilings on the credit cards because they panicked. So all across the board, all of a sudden, my American Express, my MasterCard, all of them were, they cut the, they cut the thing. So if I had, say, on a $10,000 card, I had $5,000 of charges. All of a sudden, that's my ceiling is 5000 I can't move. And now... In, in some cases, which really irritated me, some cases they drop it below that amount. And now all of a sudden turn around and charge me an over an over fee because I went over my limit. Like, my, my limit wasn't that yesterday. Well, at least Laurie had her job to support them. And her boss had doubled her salary in her first six months on the job. So at least things were going well on that front. One day my boss came in with another co-worker and he sat down and my boss just looked at me and said, I'm no longer comfortable with our relationship. said, I don't want to talk about it. You're dismissed. It's one month um, severance. And he got up and walked out. You learn your job. You do it well. So well, in fact, that the boss doubles your pay. Then, very shortly thereafter, he walks into your office and fires you in front of the VP of finance. No reason, no explanation of what you may have done so that you can learn from the experience. Just, you no longer have a job. You no longer have a paycheck. You no longer have security whatsoever. It's a life-changing experience. And for Laurie, it was her tipping point. To this day, it bugs me. Because I look back, I I retrace all my steps, I think, and I'm like, he just got 
done doubling my salary because he was so happy with me. Like, I don't know what happened to this day. And it really bugs me. And I tried to email him after that, never answered my emails. And that made me realize that somebody else, until I took matters into my own hands, somebody else was always going to control that part of my life, my livelihood. So I had better get off my butt and do something about it for myself. And never again will I allow somebody else to have that control over me. It's too devastating. It's too random. At any point, they can just pull the plug. I know what some of you may be thinking. Your job isn't at risk like that. You have job security. Well, that's what Laurie thought, too. I found that job security is, it's an oxymoron. There is no job security. No such thing. Let's put the real estate fiasco aside for a moment. This experience of being fired, of being humiliated and not being told why, it shattered Laurie's belief system. Before, she defined success the way many of us used to, the way most people still do today. I define success a couple of different ways. First of all, I defined it by the amount of sheepskin I had because I was always very intellectually curious. So it was like I didn't have enough, I would never get enough degrees. I was a professional student. I always, I always needed more, more information, more certifications, more whatever to validate myself. Maybe I don't know, but it was that was one of the degrees of success. But the other major one was how much money I made. How many things did I have? How many things could I afford? How much freedom? I thought at that point that money equaled freedom, but it's really a prison. Well, it may be a prison, but it's unlike any penitentiary I know of. Because Laurie was just kicked out. She was told that the prison no longer wanted her. Of course, you know, I I was emotional. I was crying, which really, really upset me because I did not want to give this guy the satisfaction of crying. You know, my boss or this other guy, I didn't want to do it, but it's just, it just took over. It just happened. I was just so shocked that, you know, I'm I'm crying, which really, I, I think that angered me more than anything, that I couldn't control that. But he helped me pack up and, you know, he was very, whatever, you know, sympathetic or whatever. And he walked me out and he said, good luck. And I, and I told him, you know, good luck with you too, because you're still here. Watch your back, <laughs> you know, and, and went home and I was really upset for about a week. And then I, I went through a very deep depression because I knew that I wanted to do something, but I couldn't, it was so elusive, Tim, I couldn't put my finger on it, and that's what drove me crazy. Here's what drove her crazy. In between her two stints as an HR director, Laurie had trained to be a life coach, and in her practice, she helped others to find their path in life. Now, more than anything, she needed a life coach, and it drove her crazy that she couldn't figure out what to do by herself. What kind of a life coach needs a life coach? You know, like, why can't I solve this problem for myself, you know? I went through this deep depression, and my my son, Anthony, my oldest, he had gotten a dachshund, a little hot dog dog, a little girl for his then-girlfriend, and I fell in love with this dog, and he said, Mom, the breeder in New Hampshire where I got her has a little boy left that nobody wants. You don't have to pay for her. They're going to give him away because they, they just don't have a buyer for him. And I, at the point, I was so depressed. I'm like, can, do I really, do I, I can't even take care of myself. Do I, can I really take care of a dog? And, and then I thought, you know what, maybe that's just what I need. Maybe I need to think outside myself for a change and, and have the responsibility of having to take care of something else. 
And that's when Maxwell came into our life. And when I tell you, this dog changed my life. Laurie had lost her high-paying HR job twice. She and her husband, Mark, had made millions, then lost almost every penny of that investing in real estate. And to make matters worse, they even lost their home. All they had left from their original real estate holdings was five acres with a one-level ranch house that was fire damaged. But it needed some serious work before they could live in it. So Max entered the scene at just the right moment where Laurie could focus outwardly on him rather than inwardly and become more depressed. But Max wasn't the only savior who swept in to throw Laurie and Mark a life ring. It's just a very basic, modest ranch house, one level, but it was burnt in a fire very badly. After we lost everything, his parents stepped in and helped us. We said to them, hey, how about, you know, he's an only child, my husband's an only child, so we said to his parents, they're getting on in age, and we said, you know, sooner or later, God forbid, you know, one of you is going to pass, the other one's probably going to come and live with us. Why don't we just get a house together? You sell your house, we're losing ours. And we said, why don't we combine efforts and we'll just get a house with an in-law? And sneaky as they are, they're very, uh, they're always working class individuals, both of them always worked their whole life um, from a totally different era where you put every penny away and, you know, very hardworking people and never lived above their means. And they said, okay, you know, we gutted it and started from scratch and they helped to fund that, that rehab. And at the end of the day, they said, when you're redesigning the inside of the house, we don't want to move. This is just a gift for you guys. We're not moving. Wow. Laurie couldn't believe it. I mean, let's all pause for just a second. Try to imagine that this all happened to you. You put yourself through school climbed the ladder, cashed out, but only after the company you work for was sold and you found yourself working for unappreciative owners. You had enough security to take a few years off and explore your passion, and you decided to become a life coach. You made all this money, but you weren't sure what to do with it, so you invested in real estate. Hey, everyone else was, right? Then you lose it all. So you have to get another corporate job. You're doing great. The boss doubles your pay. You're feeling wonderful. Then you get fired without warning. There's no way that Laurie could have felt in control of her life because she wasn't. She was dependent on others for income, for her identity in life. But when she was at her lowest, her in-law stepped in to lift her and Mark up. And Max was there to provide unconditional love and comfort that only a dog can. That allowed Laurie to become inspired to think not of what had gone wrong, but of what was still possible. As far back as I could remember, um, I've always wanted to start a farm. And I don't really, I don't really know why. It's just one of those things like I just always, always wanted to do. Um, Maybe because we did grow up on postage size stamps you know, the postage stamp size yard. Um, I don't know. I just always wanted to live in the country and kind of just have this picturesque kind of easy laid back lifestyle. And I, you know, I forewent that, you know, I just put that by the wayside when I was chasing what I thought at the time was 
the idea of success because I just felt like, oh, that's something I'll do like when I retire or whatever. I, I didn't look at that as like an immediate lifestyle. I looked at that as something I had to work towards to get, which is interesting because now I have the total opposite. When I coach people, I tell them, what is the end game? Like, what are you looking to get at the end of the day? And why are you going through all of these hurdles to get to that? Why not just go to that right now? And a lot of people are just blown away by that. Well, don't you have to do this? And you go, no. Like, we don't have really, you know, a lot of money at all, especially compared to before. We live a modest lifestyle, but we live the lifestyle, which I think is the most important. I live the lifestyle I've always wanted to live, ironically, and I had to lose everything to get it. <laughs> Such a poignant statement. I had to lose everything to get the lifestyle I wanted. So Laurie had always wanted a farm, and now she finally had her chance. She and Mark moved into the rehabbed house on five acres, thanks to the generous help from their parents. Of course, there are lots of farming enterprises, but five acres isn't that much to farm. Not to mention that... Most of it is wooded, so we probably have an acre that's cleared, including the house site, which still really isn't a lot of space because we have a uh, 28 by 60 greenhouse that we put up. So that that's actually bigger than my house. Unless you grow up on a farm, you're not really sure what farming enterprise is best for your land and your skill set. I didn't grow up on a farm, and neither did Laurie. So she ticked off the options available for her small farm. Remember, only an acre is cleared. Well, we went through a lot of different, um, a lot of research. I researched dairy goats. Um, I researched angora goats for the fiber. Uh, chickens, eggs, micro, microgreens, you name it. I, I looked at all the different angles and what we could grow, and we decided really on herbs and lavender. Because lavender is a, it's a plant that can live upwards of 15 years in the right climate. And people think, don't think of Rhode Island when they think of lavender. You know, you think of, you know, the Mediterranean and really where they hail from it. And, and a lot of, in the United States, it's a lot of the West Coast. It's, you know, it's um, Washington State and Sequim and, you know, that, that area where you can get a lot of lavender. But they're really... We are on, interestingly enough, we're on the same, the same latitude as like the Mediterranean. So really sunlight-wise, we have the same amount of sunlight for the same amount of time, basically. Well, yeah, as long as you get cold, hardy lavender. Exactly. And, and really, you know, the year before last was when I, when I put my first real lavender plants in, in, in beds. And I started with like 30 plants. That was it. And I put them in raised beds with the gravel, and they like crappy soil, which is great. Everyone fusses over their soil for everything, for the veggies. and everything. They love crappy soil, just like grapes. They just love that gravelly kind of. So we put the plants in, and we had such a we had all that snow that year, that into April we still had snow, feet of snow, and I think it acted as an insulator because the plants were great. None of them, none of them perished. None, they and they were outside, no covering, nothing. And so this year we've expanded. And we're actually about to put in um, another hundred plants in the front. Some new farmers just jump into farming without much business planning. Sort of a leap of faith. They navigate through enterprises and crops until they find what works best for them. 
But Laurie, remember, she's an accountant. So of course she did a business plan and um and I looked at all the different models and the different types, you know, the different types of farming and what they potentially could yield. And you know, if we were doing acres and acres of lavender, even better because it's such like I said, you you put it in once and you don't have it, it like it's like a set it and forget it. They don't like to be fussed over. You will you'll harvest them in June thereabouts and unless you have an, a variety that blooms again in September, you'll you'll harvest again then. And then in around this time of year, this is September, you'll give them um a haircut. You know, you'll prune them for this and shape them for the following season. And that's it. I mean, there's no fertilization. There's no constant watering. There's, it just likes to be left alone. So in terms of the labor, I looked at that because it's just the two of us. And really, my husband still has the landscaping portion. So really, unless there's some heavy lifting to be done, it's just me. Perfect. Laurie chose an enterprise that had a lot of excellent qualities for her situation. First, it's a low-maintenance enterprise. I mean, unlike livestock, which need looking after every day, Laurie was able to, as she said, set the lavender and forget it. Second, you can grow a lot of lavender, relatively speaking, on a small parcel of land, which is what Laurie had. And then third, another advantage is that Laurie chose an enterprise that differentiates her. I mean, most people think of starting with microgreens or livestock, right? Chickens, goats, that kind of thing. I'm sure you know a local farmer who does that. But how many lavender farmers do you know? That gives her farm an element of competitive differentiation, something critical when you're farming on a very small scale. So she seems to have chosen wisely, but she still had to figure out what to do with the crop. We harvest in June and um, the plants get cut. They get separated into bundles, which are probably about 125 to 150 stems, although we don't count it. It's a fistful and that's what ends up being. I counted it once, so <laughs> that was it. Um, and then they're hung upside down um, in a dry, cool, dark area. Where can you find such an area? My entire house is just, <laughs> it's filled. It's just filled. As long as, you know, it's supposed to be in this ideal situation, you know, and we use um, part of the basement which is set up for that. And we use whatever free space inside the house that's out of the way and not in direct sunlight we use. I mean, the house just smells amazing during that time. The fact that Laurie stores dried lavender in her house brings up another advantage of this enterprise. There's no regulation. That isn't the case, of course, with meat, dairy, eggs, and other food products, or even with soaps and lotions, as James Ray pointed out in episode one of Self-Sufficient Life when he was describing their goat's milk soap business. So. Once the bundles are dried, I sell them so fast by dried bun. The dried bundles themselves sell so fast that I just leave them hanging and I pull them down and I wrap them and put them in a box. Um, I have a special size box that I get is just just big enough for two bundles with the tissue paper and the bubble wrap and and I send it out. Um, and I also like to send like I also make like sachets and stuff like that to go with it. Everything's lavender based. Um, so I'll throw one in as a freebie because I find that that's a really um, good marketing tool as well. You know, we have these available too. Thanks for thanks for ordering. Um, please accept my 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 thanks and here's a free gift or whatever. And I, I find that building the relationships with the customers, I've come out of my shell 
with just like meeting them in, you know, even though I'm introverted, meeting them at the craft shows, it's not as intimidating as me say, I could never be like a door-to-door salesperson. <laughs> like I couldn't just go up to someone and say, hey, want to buy this vacuum cleaner? But in in this, there's so much to talk about when someone comes up, hi, how you doing? You know, and oh, this smells really great. Oh, you should smell my house right now. Lavender helped Laurie to come out of her introverted shell, but it turns out she has a partner in crime when it comes to selling her products. Yep. It's the namesake of the farm, Max the dog. Max has his own line of products. Max's Barnyard Apothecary. And he has his own line of products for dogs. So usually I attract the dog lovers with those products. And once you get talking with the dog lover, forget it. There's no, I mean, any trepidation just melts away. You're just two people talking. And usually when you build, I find that when you make that connection with someone, I don't know whether they feel obligated to buy something or they just feel good about you or whatever, but they usually end up buying something. But that's not why you're conversing with them. You know, you're just kind of making small talk. So you're not both sitting there all awkward looking at each other, you know, but it works out. So the craft shows have worked out in terms of bringing me out of my shell a little bit. And I find that the more the more conversations I have with people, the less intimidated I am to do the shows. And that's kind of helped a lot. People get crazy with their dogs, right? I mean, I have this silky terrier named Alfie who lives to ridicule me in this thick, broken English accent. He's looking over my shoulder right now, shaking his head with displeasure. Hey, stop recording this podcast, man. I think it's a bad show now. He says stuff to me like that all the time. But my wife thinks it's actually me talking. (laughs) She can't even hear him. Well, at least he only talks to me and no one else. Turns out that Max the dog actually has a blog. It's written by Max from his point of view. And it turned into like this big thing. And now he has Facebook friends that I don't even have that I've (laughs) like, they don't even know me. They know him and they follow him. And so he's kind of become like the, the mascot. Podcast man, make me a blog like this dog, Max. Zip it, Alfie. You're not getting a blog. But whereas Alfie just lives to torment me, Max was very instrumental in lifting Laurie out of her depression and bringing her out of her introverted shell. And Max, he has this whole line of products for Laurie to sell. (laughs) Wait till Alfie hears about this. Well, Max makes, um, he makes soap for dogs. He makes a goat milk based soap that has lavender and oatmeal, um, the lavender buds, the oatmeal, dried oatmeal, and he, he has um, tea tree oil in it and lavender oil in it, which happens to be natural um, flea repellents. So we don't guarantee it to, you know, get rid of fleas, but it's for those people that don't really like putting a lot of chemicals on their dogs, it's just one more step they can take to bathe it. Plus, with the oatmeal in it, it's really soothing for them. And lavender, if, if they're itching, you know, if they're itching, the, the, that's really soothing. And the lavender is actually very calming the scent and and the oil and all that's very calming so if you have like a nervous dog max calls it having nervous fur but if you have nervous fur that's great for for calming a dog you know when they have their bath um but he also has a product for hens because we we do have chickens and it's a mixed herb blend of um all different dried herbs that are good for keeping mice out of the hen boxes and for soothing the hens. Again, there's lavender in that for soothing for the hens when they lay their, lay their eggs. It's just a nice little treat for to keep the coop smelling fresh and keep the the hens calm. Um, and he's working on other products. He also has lavender dog cookies 
which just got just sold right out at the last show that we had. Um, and those are good for for nervous pops too, and just as a little treat or whatever. And he tests everything. So beyond Max's products, if you're wondering how people use lavender, some people are crafty, so they'll take the lavender apart, and they'll they'll you know they'll either make sachet, they'll strip them. They'll use the, the dried buds, which you can get dried buds from me as well, but some people like to do their own. Or some of them just put them in a vase dried and just let the, the room smell nice. You know, it just depends if they're, you know, they're crafty. I have one person that buys from me that has a jewelry business on Etsy, and she likes to take apart the bunches and use just a couple of sprigs and tie them to the box as like a gift presentation when someone buys one of her pieces of jewelry. So it's, you know, some of them use them as adornments. I just realized that this brings up another advantage of this farm enterprise when compared to many others, and that's perishability, because dried lavender has a pretty long shelf life. Depending on how it's used, if it's out in the open like that, I mean, if it's not being disturbed, it's going to lose its scent within a few months. But once you disturb it, you you redistribute the oils. You 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 know you're kind of letting loose, and you're going to lose some. You know, it's dried. So obviously, if you touch it, you're going to lose some buds off of that. You're going to have some that fall. But it will smell again for a while. And sometimes what will happen is, you know, they may display it, say, for the holidays or for in spring or for some for Easter or whatever. And then you they may take them apart and say, okay, for the rest of that, I'm going to use I'm going to use this up as a dryer sheet. And that that's another thing that we make are the dryer sheets. But the sachets. Um, last probably a good year because especially with those, you can scrunch them up and then it smells again. So, I mean, those, those last for, you know, for probably about a good year. Um, and then the dryers, the dryer sheets, they are good for between 12 and 15 or even more sometimes dries, you know, uh, loads of laundry. Laurie sells dryer sheets, but of course you could just buy the dried lavender and make your own. You just need to sew three sides of a square, I don't know, use flannel or something like that, and then stuff it with lavender, sew it closed. Hey, you're going to need something to do with your time once you opt out and don't have to fight traffic anymore. Laurie and Mark very much have opted out by now, both by choice and by necessity. Their life is very different, but they're much more appreciative of what they have now. And I'm not just talking about the material stuff. I'm talking about freedom and values. We wait for special occasions to go out to eat. And then we we go and we enjoy ourselves. But I think that there's something to be said for those luxuries. When you have money and you go out every night, it's not special anymore. You know what I mean? Having a steak every night or whatever. It's just just your lifestyle. It's just whatever. There's nothing special about it. You're just eating. But when you now have to, you, you know, you have this whole new paradigm of, you know, your lifestyle, you change your lifestyle so completely where it's not about consumption that when you do go out to eat, it's memorable. You know, you you have a good time, you savor it, and you, you know, same with vacations. We don't take vacations anymore. And that's by choice. Um, We got got to find that, you know what, it's such a hassle to go through the airport. It's, (laughs) you know, by the time you get home, you're so tired, you need a vacation after all the BS that you go through, you know, on vacation. So all those things, we kind of just changed. They certainly made a radical change in their lives, but Laurie doesn't sound unhappy, does she? No, she sounds very much at peace with where they are, just as 
all my other guests do in every episode of Self-Sufficient Life. And it always makes me wish that others could find their way to this lifestyle. People are held by the golden handcuffs. You know, they live up to their income. So they just feel like so trapped. You know, they, they have a great house. They've got the new car. They go on vacations. You know, if they're the sole provider of a, of, of a family, they're, they've got family relying on them and expecting this certain level of um, lifestyle. And they get trapped and they don't know the way out. The other thing is, though, I think a lot of people, and I was guilty of this as well for for a long time, is they identify themselves by what they do for a living. So, you know, if I'm a doctor, this is one another identification of or, or uh, explanation of, of success. Their idea of success might be, and a lot of people do this, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why people get depressed when they're out of work and and this happens not just because of the loss of money, it's because of the loss of identity. They, they identify with what they do for a living. You know, if I'm, if I'm, and title means everything. You know, I'm not just an HR person, I'm an HR director. I'm not, you know, I'm not just a, um, a secretary, I'm an administrative assistant to the president. You know, it's, so they identify with their, they, they feel as though their self-worth and everything comes from what they do for a living. She's so right. Don't even ask me what I do. I don't know. The best I can tell you is that I live, and I live happily, with my family, together, every day. But while that's accurate and certainly a good enough answer for me, it's rarely good enough for anyone else who wants to put me in a box so that they can understand. I think people do judge by um, they judge people by their their title and what they do. It's, when you meet someone, what's the first thing they do, right? What do you do for a living? It's like that's so important. That's one of the first opening statements. Depending on when, where, and when you're meeting someone, you know, you meet someone at a party or or gathering. You don't know. Oh, yeah, yeah. You eventually get around to. Oh, what do you? So what do you do? You know, and and people really identify with that. And I think when when that disappears, um or they can't deal with the fact that that may disappear. They don't want to not be a vice president of whatever. So it keeps them in the corporate world. You know, they wouldn't know what to do with themselves if they didn't have that title because that helps them to identify with who they are, you know, gives them the, their self-worth. So you have to really find your your center of self-worth from within and and really kind of take a values test on what's really meaningful to you and and go with that and have that be your compass. All that nonsense is about living your life the way others want you to, on their terms. But you don't have to do that. You can break free of those chains and live your one life the way you want to. Your title isn't important, but your freedom is. I have a different definition of freedom and success now. So freedom is now I choose where and when I'm going to work. I choose how I'm going to spend my time every day. I might be preparing for a show. I might be um, canning because we do some homesteading as well. I might be canning. I might be, you know, I might be walking Max. I could be, I could be doing one of any, anything that I want to do. And that's the big difference where before I, I, I thought money had everything to do with it. But at the end of the day or the end of my life, when I look back, I'm on my deathbed. I'm not going to remember all the times I went out to eat. I'm not going to remember 
all the clothes that I had and the designer shoes or whatever. I'm not going to, none of that would matter to me. When I realized, when I look back, I don't want to have to regret that I didn't have any fun. I didn't spend my time the way I wanted it to, the way I wanted to, because I spent it the way I thought I was supposed to, or I spent it on behalf of other people, meaning bosses. I don't want to have to have that regret. So when I look back now, I know that I'll be able to, to know that, you know, I had this awesome relationship with my husband where we're business partners, where if we want to take a day off in the middle of the week and just do something, we can do that. Um, I work basically seven days a week in one form or another, but it's never work. It's, it's stuff that I love to do. So I don't really look at it as working. And, you know, the money that we make now, it's not spent foolishly. It's not, you know, it's, it's put away or it's, it's spent on something meaningful. And the experiences that we do have now, they're, they're special. We've changed our whole idea of lifestyle and success. And now I think I'm a success because I'm living life on my own terms and not on someone else's. Before we wrap up and I give you my three key takeaways from this segment, let me remind you that the show notes from this episode are available on my website, theselfsufficientlife.com. There's also a complete transcript of this episode if you'd like to read it. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And please, please take just a second to leave a review. It helps with the rankings and allows others to learn about a self-sufficient life. So you can check out Max's Farm at maxsherbfarm.com. And when you're there, you can read more about Laurie, Mark, and of course, Max the dog. You'll also find a link to their Etsy store where you can shop for lavender bundles, sugar scrubs, and more, or pick out something from Max's Apothecary. Now, let me give you my three takeaways from this remarkable story. Okay, here's number one. Get good at marketing. Look, I cover lots of different home-based business concepts on this show. Farming, blogging, podcasting, writing books, you name it. And I cover a bunch more in my book, How to Make Money Homesteading. But regardless of what business you pursue, here's what you need to know. No sales equals new business. So you got to get comfortable with sales and marketing. Laurie wasn't because it wasn't her personality type. But you don't have to be that stereotypical salesperson we always think of. Laurie gave the example of selling door to door. That's not what sales is in modern homesteading. And most of the sales side of the game is really marketing. And marketing is pretty easy. In the world of farming and homesteading, marketing is mainly just honestly telling your story in a way that resonates with your target customer. Sure, I mean, there's the creative side of marketing, web design, logos, and whatnot, and there's the copywriting side of skillfully choosing words, and even the search engine optimization side, if you want people to find you in the digital age. But if you're not comfortable with those tasks, you can find someone to help you on Fiverr, Upwork, and elsewhere. And if you've got a day job now, perhaps in a corporation with marketing folks, take time now on their dime to learn what you can about marketing, because it's a skill you got to have when you take responsibility for your own income. Okay, the second takeaway I'll offer is to choose your farm enterprise wisely if you start a farm. I wouldn't have thought of a lavender farm for Rhode Island, but that didn't stop Laurie. And it's the perfect enterprise for her. 
She can do it alone while her husband tends to his landscaping business. It works on a small acreage and gives her lots of free time. With easy shipping, it's not geographically limited, and she has an element of competitive differentiation. A lot of folks start farming with chickens, you know, either eggs or meat. And that's fun. I've done a lot of it. But it's hard to sustain a competitive advantage. I mean, to get into that game, you only need some chicken tractors and some chicks. So the barriers to entry are low. I don't want to discourage you from that, but I do want to encourage you to carefully consider where you'll get and protect your competitive advantage. If you're thinking you don't need a competitive advantage with a farm, sorry, you do. It's a business just like the one you work for now. Okay, finally, let go of your identity. You don't need a title. You need a purpose, something that's fulfilling, that allows you to live life on your terms. Hopefully, something more connected with nature, with the land, something that your whole family can share with you. And you don't have to wait until the man fires you for no reason to choose that lifestyle. You can take control and chart your own course. You can plan your exit and start your own home-based business, just as I describe in my free ebook, The Self-Sufficient Roadmap. You can grab it at theselfsufficientlife.com slash roadmap. Download it, complete the questions I have for you, and before you know it, you'll be on your way to opting out today. Alarm wakes me up and I'm right out the door. Fighting traffic in a car that I'm still paying for A cup of coffee, four dollars gone They stick me in a cubicle And now I'm somebody's pawn The concrete jungles all around me There's gotta be a better way I'm sick and tired of staring at a screen all day While strangers teach and watch my children play I'm sick and tired of stressing over which bills to pay Not gonna live my life that way I'm opting out today Oh, I'm opting out today. They hand me a paycheck so I can pay off.